Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Claremont Lincoln University has built online master's degrees for the 21st century leader. Across their 100% online by design degree programs, everything a student learns at Claremont Lincoln University will provide the vision and framework to become an ethical leader in the organizations and communities in which they serve. The degree a student receives from Claremont Lincoln University will prepare them to lead solutions for the complex dynamic world in which we live. To learn more, about what socially conscious education means, and to learn more about the programs offered at Claremont Lincoln University, visit www.claremontlincoln.edu. Well, welcome to the Add Up Experience podcast. I am your guest host today, Dr. Stacy Gonzalez, and I am here today with the wonderful, amazing star. And I'm starstruck. My starstruck co-host, Liz Liba. Hi, Stacey. How are you? I'm so happy that you're co-hosting today because when Joe hosts with me, somehow he manages to give his little comments and make his little jokes. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have a real good down-to-earth conversation. And I keep telling Joe, if he doesn't mind his step, he's going to be losing his co-host position. So um, well, this is going to be some uh, some more ammunition that I, can, <laughs> that I could use against him. So thank you for joining today thank and, you. and leading this conversation because this is really your wheelhouse. So I can't wait. I know I'm really excited about this today and I'm really glad I get to be here. So let me, without further ado, introduce the amazing guest that we have today. So we are speaking with Dr. Manuito Biag from the Carnegie Foundation for Advancement of Teaching, along with his senior fellow, Dr. David Imag, who are both here with us. So welcome, gentlemen. We are so happy that you are both here with us today. Thank you so much for having us. We really are looking forward to this. And yes, thank you very much for having us. Thank you. So just tell us a little bit about who you are. I know we've, we've heard of the Carnegie Foundation. It's a, it's a name that we've all heard of in education for those of us interested in education. But tell us a little bit about what the Carnegie Foundation is and who you are and how you've become a part of it. The Carnegie Foundation actually has a really interesting history and we won't, we won't take the time to do it. But I mean, think early 20th century, when there were these big complex problems in American higher education and the foundation was funded and started by Andrew Carnegie uh, to begin to address some of those. And out of it is a number of things have evolved. Uh, TIA-CREF is one of those, the retirement system for most academics and most faculty is probably the most noteworthy thing, but there are a host of other things. And so over the years, it's been a privilege to be affiliated in one way or another. I came to the, the foundation several years ago in as a, in, if you will, an advisor or as a, a senior fellow uh, helping three presidents um, with different 
initiatives that they sponsored around teaching, teacher education, higher education, school leadership. At that time, I was president of the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. And that was really my pathway into Carnegie and to the terrific things that they have done now through uh, the four presidencies. Uh, we're embarking on the fourth one, uh, but it's a great foundation with a notable history of uh, really significant contributions to higher education in America. Yeah, that is um, that is a that is a long history. And you've worked with three presidents um, through that time, so you really have some history with the organization. It sounds like. Yes, but it also says something about elder elder statesmen or whatever uh, as a part of that. But no, it, it is it's been a wonderful way to be in touch with really cutting edge things that are thought about and conceived by people who really are at the forefront of American higher education, but know that so much of the work has to do with teaching and over the, and it also this coupling between higher education and K-12 or elementary secondary education is a part of that legacy. And sometimes we forget that, but this connection between um, is significant and, and ongoing. Yeah, it is. It's really important. And um, it's it's nice to know that there are still individuals like yourselves. And before our conversation, before we, we started recording today, um, you were sharing about the other gentleman on our podcast today. And um, I know you were embarrassing him. So I'm going to let you do that again. So our listeners can hear a little bit about um, what you've shared with uh, with with us uh, so they can hear about him as well. I said, and I, he, maybe he should turn off his because <laughs> he will protest. Uh, That's why we get good people like you to share our, our wins, right? You, you're having me do your job. I got you. Uh, <laughs> Lito is, is one of those exceptional young scholars in American education. Uh, we are fortunate to have him uh, as a colleague and as a uh, the staff member is, is, you know, at the Carnegie Foundation, but he brings a wealth of experience from a number of different positions that he's held at Stanford and elsewhere. Um, Well-educated with all the pedigrees, but more importantly than that, he has a wonderful way of engaging with a wide swath of uh, academics and uh, practitioners, scholars, um, who just have enormous respect for his accomplishments and his contributions. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're much too kind there, David, much too kind. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Rieg, tell us a little bit about you and, and your um, experiences thus far with the Carnegie Foundation. Sure. Thank you, Stacey. And thank you for, for, for having us. Um, so I'm Manuelito. I am a senior associate uh, here at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. I've been here for about four and a half years. Um, and I came to the foundation uh, where, from Stanford University where I was a senior researcher at the Graduate School of Education. And one of the reasons why I came to the foundation was I was really interested in their work on using improvement science and uh, networked improvement communities uh, to, to tackle really complicated and complex problems in education. Uh, you know, many of the problems that we're facing in education are so complex that no one single school system can tackle it really effectively on its own. So this idea of 
networks and the, this idea of using uh, continuous improvement really appealed to me. So I've been here for, yeah, for about four and a half years and I'm, I support all things uh, related to network improvement science, including uh, co-leading and co-directing this network uh, with David called uh, ILEAD, which stands for Improvement Leadership Education and Development. Um, and this network is really focused on um, uh, sort of enhancing the preparation and the, the training of school leaders so that they can lead continuous improvement work in schools to, to really address long-standing inequities um, that we continue to see in many of our systems today. So it's been a great pleasure uh, working on this network with David and others here at the foundation. And so it's a, it's a privilege to be here to talk a little bit about our work. Yeah, thank you. Liz, jump in, we need to hear your voice. Yeah, for sure. I'm just listening and taking this all in because I'm really fascinated by the idea of, I think both Stacy and I have worked in higher ed and K through 12 and have a real interest in some of these uh, high leverage problems that you talked about, the both of you. So are you able to kind of give our listeners an overview of some of those high level issues and um, concerns that the foundation, um, that the, the center deals with, uh, some of the, the solutions and some of the partnerships. I was fascinated by this idea of partnership, partnerships with like Baltimore City Public Schools and, and some of the initiatives that you're working on. Can you give us an overview about some of those um, initiatives and, and some of the things that you're doing in terms of community? Yeah, I, yeah, do, go. yeah I, I was going to say, so, you know, there are a variety of different projects underway here at the foundation, including uh, this partnership with the Baltimore uh, School District. Um, but in general, a lot of our work is really focused on building the capabilities of school systems, whether they be K-12 systems or higher ed systems so that the folks in those systems really sort of adopt this continuous improvement approach and mindset to their work. Um, and to do it in partnership with other people, um, whether it's a partnership between a school district or, UN, or a university, or in partnership in a larger network, um, with other institutions all across the country. And many of these problems are longstanding. Um, generally, these issues are related to the sort of equities and inequities that we see in educational opportunities and outcomes among you know, Black, Latinx students, et cetera, when compared to their white or Asian um, counterparts. And, and so uh, the work of the foundation really is I sort of building the capabilities of this system to continuously improve. And we think that is really uh, trying to redress those fundamental issues around equity. Um, and those, those solutions have been elusive, right? We, we continue to see these problems. And so we think that coming together in partnership and in networks can, um, can really take advantage of the wisdom of the crowd and, and work together towards better outcomes and better uh, better processes. Um, David, what, do you, what were you gonna add? I'd, I'd add that we also have some successes that we can highlight. I think that in this particular network we're talking about, we have 11 partnerships that range all the way from 
the Portland State University and the Portland Public Schools to uh, the University of Southern or of South Carolina and uh, Florence uh, School District. So it's a range across the country, different kinds. The New York City Public Schools, the Chancellor of that system is a a part of this and derives much uh, benefit, she says, from the interactions that the partnership and the network promote for her. So the engagement of these partners of the university and the school system, uh, we're, re we're beginning to see the kinds of successes that Lani Lilo talked about in terms of addressing need of producing a next generation of leadership that can in fact uh, deal with them in, in significant ways and to begin to make the shifts and the changes in systems uh, toward the end of better serving, better meeting the needs of all uh, students. I have so many questions. I wanna kick it back over to Stacy in a second. But mm -hmm. one of the things that always, I think nags at me as someone that's worked in K through 12 and higher ed is how we create more of a synchronicity and a synergy across that whole spectrum of K through 12 and then going into the higher ed sector. I feel like sometimes it seems like there's so much of a disconnect. And then when we think about inequity, I think there is a lack sometimes of understanding from us that primarily work in higher education as to some of the disparities that are present in the K through 12 systems. Can you guys address some of that? Like how we might as a sector in terms of higher education be able to be more aware and what are some of the initiatives that you're seeing with the partnerships and with some of the things that you're doing as far as leadership development and looking at equity and systems, how we might be able to bridge some of those gaps in terms of those students that, that are aspiring to go to college, but then we don't seem to be able to necessarily guide them from K through 12 to be successful once they get into the higher ed uh, space on campus. Liz, there yeah. a, there's a lot there. Yeah. That you yeah. <laughs> the, um, I'll, I'll take a, a quick uh, shot at this. Um, the, the partnership notion is one that starts, you know, we've been trying to do this for 100, 100 years, 150 years in, in some sense. And, and we forget sometimes that universities and schools, and particularly in urban areas like Baltimore, were once the same system. They were integrated uh, into a commonness and they were funded and supported and many times governed by the same boards and the same governance systems. And then we split and we've, the, the division between I think is, is been amazing because it just is not, not productive to be so separate. And we've had scholars and writers address this forever. So how do you put these two systems back together as a, an ongoing challenge, an ongoing problem. Both the Carnegie Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation have worked at it for, for 100 years. And so we're, we're part of that. And it's, it is our belief that absent real significant engagement across the boundaries that now separate higher ed and K-12, that we're not gonna be able to, to meet the needs of that next generation of, of college students, of the students today in our secondary schools who want to move forward. And it and so this is a, is a significant issue. And a significant, but our answer to that is at the secondary level, we also need a new generation of leaders who can take this on and make this a high priority with an equity lens on all of this, 
but determined to, in, in some sense, make sure this, the, the engagement of higher ed and K-12 is, is ongoing and is uh, significant toward the end of addressing uh, the needs of all populations, but particularly the, 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 the equity agenda of, uh, of the foundation and others. Yeah, um, plus one uh, <laughs> with everything David said. I think for me, there's, I mean, obviously historically we have tried to put these systems um, I think synchronous was your was your word or synergy uh, in better synergy with one another, but because they have been um, they've sort of matured as two different systems with you know the K twelve and the higher ed system with two different types of organizational structures and incentives, it, it makes it more difficult, right? And so I think D David said a little bit about that about the boundaries between these two institutions. I think it's all about joint work, you know, like if you're coming together to solve a problem that no one institution can effectively solve on its own, but together you probably have more likelihood to solve that problem, whether it's the better preparation of school principals or the better preparation of teachers, then I think it's, it, it, it gives both institutions better skin in the game, right? They're really invested in it and they wanna work towards those um, towards solving that joint problem. So I think the more we can sort of identify where these problems are, these sort of high leverage problems that if we work on them together, we can actually effectively create new ways of working so that it is more synergistic and so that it is more integrated and it's more, um, it's more joint, it's more shared, right? So that's what I would say to, to that question. Yeah, I, I appreciate that as somebody who has spent, gosh, I think I've been a high school or, a, you know, K-12 administrator. I was in um, several different districts um, in Illinois, uh, the third largest one. And I would agree with you relative to the partnership piece, um, even at which we would think even at the local levels to be able to partner with um, you know, our community colleges and build that pipeline, even in education, right? Like building that pipeline from high school to either community college or straight to university, the level of um, bureaucracy and um, barriers that we faced at the, at the level where I'm even at, which you would think could be a little maybe easier to, to move some of those. So I'm wondering how you're doing it um, and how you're gonna be able to scale some of those. Like you, you talk about this partnership approach when it seems like our divides continue to grow further apart than closer together. Um, and this is just, right, my limited perspective, clearly not the national perspective that you guys have, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how, how you're noticing from the people in the organizations are partnering, not just the organizations themselves, but what do the people need to do? How do we position ourselves to work collaboratively together to make these moves that matter? Mm -hmm. Stacy, you want it? Yeah, let me start it and then, Stacy. One of the things that uh, we would encourage your listeners, but you would enjoy, is to be able to dig, dig in through ILE, this organization, this network, to to the University of Illinois at Chicago and the Chicago Public Schools, which is one of our most robust partnerships. It is one that now stretches back twenty years, and it is one that in in many ways is the most successful. I mean, 
all the, all the indicators you would use from student score gains to uh, success in terms of matriculation. All, all the, there is a story about Chicago that is not known yet. And there is a publication that the foundation is sponsoring, the former president has helped to develop and the, and the current president um, about this that will be forthcoming. And I, you, you will find it very interesting. But it's getting people to appreciate the fact that this is joint work. This is not something that you can say they're gonna do it. You actually have to come together. You struggle together. You identify the problem and you work together. And we can point to Denver and we can point to uh, New York City and we can point to uh, Baltimore or to Prince George's County and the University of Maryland. These are, these are success stories where this is happening, where there is real interaction and where I think the barriers are coming down and the, and the engagement is rising. Yeah, I would, I would agree with David. And I think with Chicago specifically, one of the big sort of paradigm shift that I think happened in Chicago was that the university, when thinking about its you know, graduate programs and preparing school leaders, they really thought of the student in the K-12 system as the end customer, mm. right? It's yeah. like it's like when you think about you know recruiting people into an EDD program or a Masters of Ed program, you think of the graduate student who's the aspiring principal or who's the aspiring teacher as the the kind of end customer. But at the end of the day, the end customer is actually the kid in the classroom, in the school, in the community that's going to need those kinds of leaders that can help him or her succeed and realize their full potential. So in many ways, this idea of, of, of the, it is a paradigm shift, right? Like to really think about this as joint work, it's not just, you know, my work and then it's your responsibility after that. Like, you know, it is a thing that we have to come together. And I think, you know, in, in some states, for example, California, they're trying to come up with data systems where there's easier access to data across the K-12 and post-secondary systems, right? So that there's better translation of outcomes uh, and, and monitoring of student outcomes across the system as they matriculate from K-12 to post-secondary. So structures like that that help enable that kind of joint work and partnership are really supporting this notion that it is not just my work and then your work, it's really our work. If you walk by a homeless person and say, somebody should do something, you're right. If you say, I should do something, we should talk. We're Claremont Lincoln University, and we're offering a dynamic new online master in public administration program that is designed to empower the next generation of changemakers, people like you. CLU is online by design, with faculty that are scholar practitioners who are on the front lines. This isn't theory. This is reality. So if you're ready for a new MPA program that makes everything else seem old school, go to claremontlincoln.edu today because it's time for a change. Find out more at claremontlincoln.edu slash MPA. Yeah, and I love that. It's, I just um, spent the day planning a um, workshop with a colleague of mine on um, self-care for leaders, uh, educational leaders. Mm -hmm. And we created an activity at the end, uh, it's a three hour workshop where um, we're using some 
big brand names, because we really want to get down to this notion of this, to your point exactly, around the student being the end customer. And so we started to think, like, how do we really make and help our leaders who are under dire stresses right now, right? We still are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, the individuals, we know the, the number two search term um, of burnout is teacher burnout. Like we know that that is real, right? And we knew that teacher, um, not necessarily elementary, but as a high school person, I was really concerned pre-pandemic, the um, lack of teachers, high school teachers, right? And so how do we help this new generation of leaders as well as those to your point in high school and start really validating this profession and bringing it, um, highlighting what the amazing things that can happen in, in this field of education, the learning sciences, as you mentioned, the, the work that you're doing, um, wondering how, how you're thinking about that. David, you want to have a go? I'll have a go, but Stacey, what a question. Um, <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. And you have another 45 minutes at least. Uh, uh, indeed. The, it is, you know, we all have the end of one. I have a daughter who teaches in a county not too far from here that, and I, I heard she and her peers are exhausted. And here, you know, we're now back in school and we're trying to get to, to another month, another 60 days or whatever. Um, and, and her story is so typical of all the teachers I interact with. Um, there's exhaustion out there and now we're, we're, we need to accelerate the, get kids back in and accelerate their learning. We appreciate that, but we also have to pay attention to mental health. One of the nice things in the last week that I had was a conversation with uh, HR director in Jackson, Mississippi, who's talking about how do you create joyful schools? How do we bring kids back to joyful surroundings or so forth? And how do you get leaders to embrace that concept and begin to help uh, bring those kinds of schooling experiences into existence? I think the, these are enormous, and we need higher education in some sense to help buttress that, to help engage with that, to help lead the, uh, the development of those leaders and to be there to stand with them and to be you know, mutually responsible for the outcomes. So this, this is an, an agenda of enormous possibility, but also enormous consequence. Yeah, I mean, student mental health, teacher mental health are, are, are so critical at the moment. And I think also, I, I, I would argue, and we wrote a piece about this, that COVID-19 and this, this global sort of health pandemic has really underscored that it's, gonna, it's not going to be the last pandemic or the last complicated big problem we're going we're gonna to encounter. And so we better think of ways to work together and to partner together to, to tackle these very complicated issues that isn't just hitting one particular institution or system. And so that means thinking more holistically, not just, for example, thinking about student mental health, but also supporting uh, adult mental health and teacher mental health. So prior to, you know, I used to work for the San Francisco Unified School District and I was a, uh, my title was a wellness coordinator, but basically what I did was I coordinated health and mental health services for the, uh, for two high schools in the district. But much of my work also was connecting teachers and the staff to services that they would need as well in order to do their job well and to serve those students well. 
So many, I had many teachers come to me who may have, you know, have had a hard day or was struggling with their own issues for, for information about supports, about how they can better take care of themselves so that they can show up for kids. So I think the pandemic and the sort of these, this, this, this public health emergency has really underscored that we need to think more holistically and we need to think of ways to better work together to sort of address problems that are super uncertain and we have no idea what's going to come. And so I think, I don't know, partnership and, and solving those kinds of things, I think is fundamental. Yeah, I, I appreciate that um, because we, you know, we, we're seeing a lot in the news about the learning loss and, and I, I you know, certainly um, do I believe in learning and that that growth should should happen and there's academic discussions and discourse and, and IQ and those things that we, mm-hmm. we subscribe to, right? But this emotional toll that our, our students have taken on as well as, as all of us have, right? I right. was just I was talking to a friend who's probably one of the most Zen people I know opposite of myself. And, and I was talking to her the other day and she's like, I usually live at like a two and I'm at a seven. So I can't imagine how the rest of us are like, how the rest of you, basically the Stacey Mm -hmm. who live at an eight most of the time are making it. And I'm like, right. Um, And so we have to account for that in, in this, um, in the system that really, if you think about it, teachers, educators, K through 16, 20, whatever we want, however we want to extend that, really hold the hearts. And I know that might sound a little cliche, but for many of us, especially in those K-12, yes, we love our content, but we see that many times as a vehicle to the the heart of a child and the heart of learning. And so um, I got to ask you guys this. I really want to, you know, being a high school person, that Carnegie unit, that darn Carnegie unit, that seat time piece, that, that thing, that, that thing that we've been so, it's been so difficult to shake. Um, where are you guys at with that? Where, how, how are we going to change that? David. <laughs> oh, thank you. You knew, thank you. you knew, that's why they asked me. I oh, love that's what, why I, I love that he said that, David. Really glad you asked me. Really glad you asked me. I'm definitely not working on that issue. But <laughs> yeah, I wonder yeah. if David is I, I, I from like the higher ed side. Yeah. From the higher ed side, no, I don't think so, right? But, but it was to understand that it was originally conceived of as creating commonness across the high school experience. It was a way for colleges to have a better understanding of the kids who were coming through. And the Carnegie Foundation is very conscious and very aware of the, that it is binded us in some ways. And there, there's a lot of talk and a lot of policy debates in terms of how you, but if you do change it, how do you create a, this continuing understanding? Do you move to a competency model of some sort? Uh, are there other ways that you can achieve the same thing that the unit was originally intended to do? So the mm-hmm. conversations are on, but I don't think that there's resolution yet. And as yeah. says, there are all sorts of policy boards that are going to make those decisions. Yeah, indeed. And even, I mean, the pandemic has really, I think, shifted how we even just think about what is education, <laughs> because I mean, learning happens in all sorts of places, right? Then families have become teachers. 
Um, and schools have really focused on the sort of the caregiving aspects during the pandemic, making sure kids are fed over the summer and, and things like that, making sure the kids get services. And so reimagining these sort of uh, Carnegie units or whatever traditional ways of, of, of assessing learning, I think is going to be, I think, challenged given the current sort of disruption to the normal ways of how we've seen learning take place. Schools are, I mean, learning is not a place-based thing anymore. <laughs> I mean, we, we clearly see that you don't really need a school building right, right. for kids to go to every day, right? For a certain number of hours, learning can take place in all sorts of places and people who are not normally seen as educators can serve as teachers. And so I think the pandemic gives us this really amazing opportunity to reimagine what counts as learning, um, whatever, you know, units or otherwise, but like what counts as learning, who counts as, as teachers, you know, what do we value, right, in, in, in education? So I think this is a moment for us, hopefully uh, we don't waste a crisis <laughs> to think in new ways. I love that. In terms of thinking in new ways and reimagining and also addressing some of the needs of the most marginalized students, I know a lot of what has come up as the pivot to online has happened. And like you said, a lot of parents are getting more involved with the, the teaching and learning process, even whether it's a K through 12 and even for myself, I have an elementary school uh, child, aged child, and then I have a college student. So looking at both of how we navigated everything that happened during the pandemic has been interesting. And I think one of the things that surprised a lot of people in higher ed was the amount of disparity when we're thinking about uh, online internet access and the digital divide and uh, some of the other things that have come up in terms of the opportunity uh, gap and how a lot of the time we may just assume that there is uh, equal access at schools and, and students have the same um, abilities and resources available to them and it's not necessarily so. One statistic that stood out to me as I was doing a lot of research about inequity in K through 12 was about the, um, the inequities and uh, staffing in terms of uh, having enough black teachers and teachers of color in the classroom and how that also relates to outcomes for students. What are some of the things that you think are going to be helpful? I know one of the, 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 uh, the stats that I saw was about how a lot of times in K through 12, even when you're able to recruit uh, black teachers, a lot of times they're not able to be retained or they're not getting the same um, maybe teacher training or the same amount of support when they actually go into the school system. What are some things that we need to do to nurture teachers at K through 12 and also faculty at in higher education so that we have more diversity and that we can nurture those uh, Black faculty and other faculty mm -hmm. of color to leadership positions so that we can also help systemically to improve uh, the outcomes for our students. This is a challenge that I've been a part of for now 50 years. Um, we've been working on this with little success, uh, although everyone should be aware of the fact that the total number of African-American and Black teachers is, is increased, um, but it, isn't, it hasn't kept up with the changes in the student population. So step forward and seemingly a couple steps backward. Um, we've used the HBCU uh, access. 
They are the continue to be the largest producers of African-American teachers. And the teachers that come out of the historically black colleges and universities are usually very well equipped to deal with every classroom, not just classrooms with high populations of, of, of black students. But the evidence now suggests that there actually is a very beneficial impact that black teachers have on black students. And we need to appreciate and recognize and embrace that in ways that does result in more African-Americans coming into teacher ed. At every university that I know, this is a priority. Uh, there are recruitment efforts. The pandemic has set us back, but how we engage uh, more dollars around recruitment, how we reach out to uh, schools in all of our urban districts um, is extraordinarily important. We, as I suggest, we've tried different routes in the past that, that Stacey met, made mention of community colleges back. We've tried to, to see the community colleges a pathway in. Uh, there are other efforts. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation very early was funding initiatives to address this. So this is a consistent effort but we haven't seen the success that we have to have and we want. Definitely. Um, we haven't seen the successes that we want and, and, and clearly we're grappling with teacher shortages and, and we do know that overwhelmingly the teacher profession is predominantly white and predominantly female. And so I think there needs to be a lot of reforms both in the sort of recruitment strategies as well as supporting teachers all along the way and so things like you know I don't know the research as well as, as David does but I, you know from what I do know that there are a lot there are some effective recruitment strategies in making sure that uh, for example like having forgivable loans um, and having service scholarships as a way to sort of financially um, incent a lot more um, uh, students of color into the teaching profession um, there's a lot of districts that are doing their own teacher residencies or, or grow their own programs, right, to, to recruit uh, educators from their communities. Um, obviously, once the teacher is in the schools and in the district, right, um, creating those supportive working conditions, you know, high quality mentoring and having good relationship with the principal, ongoing professional learning, ongoing professional development, um, collaboration, right, with other teachers, um, all of those things, and obviously compensation, right, um, making sure that there are equitable salaries, that the salaries are competitive, that they can actually live on that salary, um, I think are all, these and many others are all important strategies to ensure that there is greater diversity in, in and retention in, in the teacher workforce. So that's what I would say. Yeah. I, I would very quickly, Buttress has been saying there are two or three groups that I would encourage people to, to look to. The American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education has a number of initiatives uh, that they have embraced and are promoting. Um, and I, so that, that would be one place. The Learning Policy Institute is a group that documents and tracks this with a number of scholars. Um, and what they are trying to do is both identify and then to uh, confirm uh, evidence that uh, promotes the kinds of strategies that Manuelito talked about. Those are all things that you know are really important. And and you had mentioned the um, you know the majority of 
uh, women, there's more women in education. And, and Liz knows, don't get me going on my you know, female leaders. But when you look at CEOs compared to superintendents, um, it is predominantly male, right? Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though the profession is predominantly female. So mm-hmm. really empowering more women through that pipeline and showing um, our, our young women that it is, there's, there's, there's not only ladders, but there are really creative opportunities out there for what I like to call like that Latisse, right? Different pathways, different areas, um, in, in schools, it's not just teaching, but there's counsel, especially now, right? Counseling, social work. There's so many other opportunity areas in our, our public education system that we really can um, encourage and support. And it's really got to be from that, from the early on, um, as we kind of, you know, start to look at our young, our young students and see these students have a propensity to want to work with other human beings and they have some leadership capability and they have, right, you know, the kids on the playground and, and kind of really, you know, the pipeline, quote unquote pipeline, I think uh, can certainly start a little bit earlier than we thought mm-hmm. about it to help maybe shift some of these things. So mm-hmm. um, really appreciate um, the work that that you guys are doing uh, to help move this profession forward, to reinvigorate it, to um, rethink about it, you know, to your point about this is an opportunity time, this crisis mm-hmm. has taught us so much, so much about our own humanity. Um, and, and the beauty of a being in a free and democratic society and having compulsory education is that we have that. And so let's not let that go to waste, right? Let's not let this learning right now uh, take away um, this, yeah. this beauty that we have. And I think I would, I, I agree with you. And I, I think I would also add that this is an opportunity to reimagine power, yes. right? About yes. how, like who has power about what counts as learning and what counts as educators, right? Because we have seen and we've had to rely on folks that are not traditionally seen as educators or involved in educational systems. And we've had to kind of take on a more holistic whole child approach. And so what what if power is better distributed, right? And that there are these decisions that are being made at the local level in concert with families and communities for the well-being of their children, right? And so I think this is an opportunity to not only reimagine schooling altogether, but I think in that there's an opportunity to better democratize education and to rethink distribution of power. And so I, again, I, like I said earlier, I just hope that we don't waste this crisis as a, as a real big opportunity to reimagine what learning is. That's right. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I'll kind of uh, bring us, I'll bring us around the bend here, but one thing that I think we can assume, you know, we shouldn't make assumptions, but mm-hmm. one thing we can assume is that every parent loves their children. Like our parents love their kids and mm-hmm. they want the best experience for their kids. And so there are other ways to think about how we give those experiences to students. And um, there's not just one way. So thank you, thank you for for that. So as we kind of wrap it up here today, um, two things that I, I'd love to hear from you. Is there anything that we didn't ask you today that you wanna make sure that you, you share with our, our listeners? And then the second thing is, where do you see the future of education in about you know 
five, 10 years from now? What does it look like? Can we have another 60 minutes, please? Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Um, no, I, I, where are we? The, the biggest worry that I have is the appeal of going back to a normal. Mm. It wasn't fair, it wasn't equitable, it wasn't intended to get the kinds of outcomes we want. And when people start saying, well, we, when are we gonna get back to normal? That just is the wrong, the wrong thing to be asking. It's taking Manuelito's thesis or theme or whatever. It's how do we better recast American education, schooling in this country to embrace many more people, many more institutions in that? How do you bring higher ed more to be more engaged in it and to begin to think of a very different kind of schooling uh, than we thus far have experienced? The second thing I think that that's going to guide this or determine this. And Sonia Santamar, the superintendent in Baltimore, this is hers, but we have now, over the last year, we have opened up everything that we do in schooling to the parents who have been active teachers, observers, participants in the schooling process. And they're not going to give that up. So how do we better engage parents to help us shape this next this next generation of schooling is kind of the theme that I'm trying to address right now in my own writing and thinking. Yeah, um, so I don't know if there wasn't anything that we didn't mention, but I do, I, I do sort of want to underscore this idea that to, to solve these complicated, complex problems of practice, we need to do it together. We need to do it in partnership. And that's why these, these ideas of networked improvement science and partnerships between universities and districts, it, it really does take a village. I mean, so I, I think I wanna underscore that, particularly now, given all the challenges that have been brought about by the pandemic. And again, similar to what David said, I hope that in the future where we might see ourselves five or 10 years from now is that, you know, schools are held and educate, you know, educators are held more accountable for, for making sure that students receive the opportunities that they need in order to reach their fullest potential. And, and we need to reimagine the kinds of systems that we provide to our young people so that they have equitable access to high quality teachers, to, to, to teachers that look like them, that are from the community, right? So that we can, we can really provide and really achieve what, what schools were designed to do, right? It's to educate every child. And so I hope that you know, a few years from now, we're gonna get better um, in working together and in, in really addressing these sort of stubborn inequities that we continue to see today, so. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for the work that you are doing, um, for persisting uh, in, in this really, um, it's, it's hard work, but it's rewarding work. It's complex, and um, but at some points it's simple too. So. Thank you, thank you. And thank you for being with us today. Thank Dr. you so much. Dr. Manuelito Biag and Dr. David Inman from the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Um, if our listeners want to find you, where can they go to find out more about you? 
They can find out more about me and the work of the foundation by going to our website. Uh, just, just Google the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and you can find, find us there. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Hey, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edup Experience. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.